0: So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30.
1: Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adamian Golf. So, what are we talking about today? We're going to do another, maybe we'll call this like a foundational episode. Well, I don't I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to take foundations as my thing, but it, it's going to be like a core episode of the sweet spot, right? What are we doing today? Foundational practice. Pla- <laughs> foundational practice. practice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Let's combine everything together. Both our plugs in there. Yeah. So we're looking at iron practice. So we're just, I think a lot of it is going to be similar to general practice, but there are some specifics within irons. And then we obviously got a lot of questions on Twitter that relate to it. So we'll we'll go through those. So almost like another mailbag really, but a little bit of stuff from us first.
1: Yeah. I wanted to like take a step back as we I still don't know if we're at 100 episodes yet. I don't count, but I think this could be very close. So as we get to our century mark here, and for those who have been with us from the beginning, thank you very much. And for all you new people, just a reminder that this is an evergreen show, and this episode will prove that. I think we're going to probably refer to, my guess is six to 10 episodes in this episode that you can go to and and do some more homework and learn more. But I wanted to just take a step back and remind people, like my view on iron practice is that, or we could call it approach shot practice. Maybe we'll throw in hybrids and fairway woods. I have no clue. But the 40,000 foot view of this, in my estimation, is that your irons are your scoring clubs. You know, people always said your wedges were. And when you really look at it, how do golfers separate from one another and where does scoring mostly occur? Our friend Mark Brody, who... Absolutely go back to his episode and the Strokes gained research. Iron play, your approach shots. This is where a lot of scoring occurs. This is how you go from a 20 handicap down to a 10 or 10 to scratch. So when people ask me, how do I shoot my lowest scores? I say, you're going to need to hit more greens. And how do you do that? With better iron play. So this is incredibly important. And with that, I don't know how you divide your practice time adam but i would say the most time i spend if you're looking at the, the clubs is absolutely with my approach clubs that is the majority of my practice it's important
0: yeah i'd say 90% of my practice is with irons throw a few drivers in at the end you know i might spend a little longer if there's something happening that i don't like but wedges i hit a lot of wedges on the course so it's kind of half half shots but yeah, irons are, are absolutely huge for me. A big portion of my practice. Because you know, as you said, to hitting greens in regulation, if every time you miss a green, statistically, it's going to cost you around about 0.7 of a shot, right? If you've got a 30% up and down rate. If you've got a good short game and you're 50% up and down, it still costs you half a shot every time you miss the green, really. It's a big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I also think it's almost like what doesn't happen in your iron swing that, you know, we got a question on Twitter, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but, you know, how does your driver swing differ from your iron swing? And I guess this is the main point we're making is that, you know, you, you start getting that iron swing down, those skills with your iron swing, you know, six iron, seven iron, eight iron, those clubs where you get really good feedback, even longer irons, I'll get into that you start solving the impact questions, like that translates to everything. That's good for everything. That's that's good for your wedge play. That's good for your driver game. Like a lot, gets, a lot gets
0: solved in this part of practice. The impact skills, the big three, if you can hit different parts of the face with the irons, it will usually transfer to other parts of the club. I don't practice hitting more toe or heel with the driver. I very rarely do that, but I do that with irons. And as a result, whenever I'm getting a bad pattern with the driver, I can quickly fix it, even though I've never practiced with that club specifically. So, yeah, all the drills that you practice with irons will transfer. Similar with right and left, you know, if I need to flash the face open a few more degrees, I can do that even though I've never directly practiced it with a driver. Practice it all the time with the irons, but not with the driver. It just transfers over. I would call it, maybe
1: we call it the Rosetta Stone of golf. <laughs> you crack that thing and everything else opens up for you. So here's a question for you. I'm I'm curious what you think. A lot of people ask us, one of the, the main questions we get, even on, on in general, is like, how do I divide my practice time? And one thing that I've been tweeting out recently that I think is opening people's eyes up is that I think a lot of golfers get stuck, not stuck, or they fall in love with practicing their shorter irons so maybe pitching wedge nine iron gap wedge stuff like that and not that they're not important but i think you could develop maybe a false sense of confidence or feedback versus if you started using more lower lofted irons like i've been tweeting a lot recently that i think long irons are just good training aids in general because it's harder to satisfy our big three which you'll hear about on this episode Ground contact, face strike, and face control. Like it's just a stouter test. And I think a lot of golfers get stuck with the higher lofted irons and and don't spend as much time with even like a seven or six iron. I'm talking about those irons. I'm curious when you practice, how do you view that difference between like the higher lofted ones and the lower lofted ones?
0: So it depends on what I'm trying to achieve. But there's this idea in motor learning theory that if you are practicing a task that's too easy and there's not enough failure within that, then the learning rate goes down. So say you're practicing something very easy. Like if I ask someone to hit a balloon or a soccer ball with a golf club, it's just too easy. And with wedges, you're making the face-to-path separation much, much easier. So say, for example, I got some numbers here, I won't go too much into, into detail, but say you're practicing with a, a wedge, and you present the face five degrees closed, you're probably only going to get about five yards of curvature on it. It might not even be perceptible to the eye, really. I mean, if you've got really trained eyes, you'll see it. But so you can get a false sense of security. You can think, oh, I'm hitting it straight. Now, that same error, if you were to produce that same swing with a driver, it's 50 yards offline. So the problem is that's where lots of people run into this. Well, I hit my wedges and my high shot straight, but when I get to the driver, it's all over the place. And they think they're doing something different. The fact is they're probably doing something that's they're doing the same things with all the clubs. It's just that is getting magnified as you go up through the bag. So yeah, if you're using a club that's too high lofted, you're not gonna see some of the directional errors that you would with a lower loft. Now, on the other end of the spectrum of that motor learning theory, if you pick a task that is too difficult for you, then that can drop your confidence. It can lead to more frustration and that can lead to lower learning as well. Now, that I think that is dependent on the personality of the person in front of you and also the goal of the person. So as you said, using a long iron, that is very difficult because it's it has a smaller sweet spot than say a a hybrid or a fairway wood. It's got a thin sole, so you're not gonna get away with some of the chunks that you would with a hybrid. It's got a low loft, so you're going to see the directional errors magnified. And it's got a longer shaft as well, so it's much more difficult to hit. So long irons are very, very difficult to hit. So if you go in and you practice with a long iron, yes, you are going to get more errors. It's going to lead to more frustration, maybe a drop in confidence. However, if you go in with the mindset of this is a difficult task, I think that can be okay. You can accept the bad shots much more and you can actually get more learning out of a longer club so i'm with you on that john
1: yeah i think it also depends on i know we have a lot of different levels of golfers listening to this so you know i would not tell someone go out and get a tour issued two iron trying to hit that when you're a 20 handicap then that's just too extreme of a test so you know for the beginner to intermediate player that could be hitting a seven or six iron. It's low enough loft where you're getting good feedback directionally in your path and all that stuff. But the test isn't so stout that it's completely frustrating. Whereas a more advanced player would be like, let's spend some time hitting three, four irons if you've got them. And, you know, that's what I try to do, because for me, that's a hard test because I got to get the ball in the air. I need to present more loft. I need to work on my club path and make it less into out. You mentioned this earlier. I can get away with a seven or eight degree into out path with my lob wedge or sand wedge. I can't get away with that with my four iron because I'm going to hook the hell out of it. So I'm going to need to shallow out that path. Good face. So, yeah, I think, you know, as you listen to us talk about this and I'm telling you, And Adam, as well, the lower the loft, the better the test, the better the feedback. Take that a little bit with a grain of salt. Like that could be a seven iron for some of you, it could be a three iron for others, but a good blend of frustration and challenging versus being way too hard. So you have to be cognizant of that as well.
0: Yeah, it depends on your goal. Some days you want, you know, some days I'll stand there beating an eight iron. The goal of that is enjoyment, the goal of that is to see good shots. The goal of that is to build my confidence, but I'm under no illusion that, you know, doing that block practicing an eight iron is actually improving me. You know, there's not enough error there. I'm hitting great shots, but there's not enough error to actually force an improvement out of me. You know, think of errors like strength training. You know, the more errors you have, the more solutions you have to try and find. Errors are good (laughs) in a way in training. You need enough error to have to make a, a change. Absolutely. We're probably going to
1: refer to a lot of different episodes in this. I'll use some of my main thought in my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, plug. I just viewed iron practice or approach shop practices, you kind of throw the kitchen sink at it in terms of all of the different practice methods that I like and Adam likes, meaning starting the ball in different directions, challenging yourself to strike different parts of the face, working on your ground contact, loft presentation, trying to hit it high, trying to hit it low, experimentation. If you're a fader of the ball, try and hit a low hook. So I think that, you know, and we're going to plug a lot of different episodes in here, but you kind of can do a lot of different things with iron practice. And there's no right or wrong answer for every golfer, but, you know, our collective goal on this show is to get you out of just showing up and doing the same thing over and over again which is again you know hitting your seven iron mindlessly to the same target not to say that hitting your seven iron over and over again can't be productive but we'd rather you pay attention to our big three go back to that episode or many others is every shot you hit how is the face strike was it fat was it thin Where did the ball start directionally? Was it too far left and right? The curvature through the air. So paying attention to feedback is so important. So that's how I view iron practice is that there are a lot of different ideas you can use based on the time of year it is for you, your skill level. So yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things you could do with it versus just beating balls and hitting the same club over and over again.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that you know the difference between driver practice and iron practice as you said is you can do more with the iron practice there's certain things that i do with irons that i wouldn't do with woods as i said i'm not trying to present the face more open or more close you know to hit different shots with a driver perhaps i'm more blocky with a driver whereas with irons i experiment a little bit more toe heel open closed which apparently is controversial. <laughs> I don't know if you saw my post. Oh, are you talking about your Facebook post? Yeah, I, I uh, posted <laughs> I a what, testimonial. Your, your Facebook
1: group sounds scary. I don't want any part of that thing.
0: It's just Facebook in general. The type of people on Facebook, I don't want to insult anybody. There's lots of great people on Facebook as well. But I think you get more, there's definitely more rude people on Facebook. Like I have a lot of people <laughs> who I have to delete the comments because I'm like, yeah, I don't want any kids reading that. <laughs> you know, that, that's yeah, pretty wow. insulting. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Twitter tends to be a little bit more open to discussion, should we say? But yeah, apparently, you know, the stuff we talk about, differential learning, and so we're going to need to do a full podcast on this at some point, it's quite controversial. But yeah, doing toe, heel, face open, closed, it doesn't have to be all of your practice. I think this this is where people go wrong, is they think that's all you do? It's like, no, it might be 10, 20% of, of the practice. It might be less than that. It might just be something you throw a few balls in if you're struggling with a certain pattern. But yeah, you can certainly do more types of practice with irons, definitely.
1: Let's talk about that really quickly for those, you know, maybe who are newer to the show that that style of practice. So we like to talk about doing the opposite of your fault. So for example, for me, if I'm struggling, if I feel a little clanky with my irons. So again, very fundamental thing. Every iron shot we hit or you hit, we want you to think about how is that feeling in my hands? How is the contact on the face? Because that's number one in terms of quality Of ball flight, hitting more greens, getting the ball to the green, because as you strike it more towards the center of the face, the golf club can do what it's designed to do launch it with more ball speed, more efficient spin in the air better. So I'll give a perfect example. When I'm struggling with my irons, I'm getting clankier on the heel side. So I might need to spend, if I'm struggling with that, maybe a high heel miss, I'm going to be more intentional about maybe trying to strike the toe so doing the exact opposite and exaggerating it and then maybe spraying the face to pay attention. At this point I could probably feel it in my hands. I don't need to spray it as much. So it could be doing the opposite of your fault or as Adam, you know, put in your book, a differential practice is just going there and saying, "Hey, I'm going to test myself. I'm going to try and hit toe, center, heel." And you can apply this to anything, right? How you start the ball starts. Yeah. Try and hook it, try and slice it, try and hit it higher, try and hit it lower. It can be like, I never want people to do Tiger's nine window drill. Like I put that in my book. No, I'm
0: not as much of a fan of that anymore.
1: It's too stout of a demand, but I think it's just a good starting point to know that. Yeah, part of Tiger's work, I think it was mostly with Hank Haney, if I'm remembering the book correctly, is that he was trying to hit those nine windows. Low left, low draw, low fade, low straight all the way up and down. I don't want everyone trying to do that, but that's an example of trying to hit a bunch of different, get a bunch of different outcomes or a bunch of different intents with your shots and experimenting and that's helpful. And some people are like, why would you ever do that?
0: Lots of people apparently. The the task needs to be scaled to the level of the player. So it's okay when you're an elite player like Tiger Woods, the best in the world. Yes, a very difficult task like the nine ball flights is going to be great for him because it satisfies that optimal challenge zone, right? It's, it's challenging enough for him that he can't complete it every time. We used to say that sometimes it would take him a few hours to complete it. But it's you know it's not too easy as well. You know, beating balls at that level towards a target is mind-numbingly boring. Because if you're Tiger, you're just going to be lasering it onto the target. this your mind will start to drop off. So that's a great challenge for him. But for a you know for a 15 handicap, that's just too much you know they can't maybe you know if you get into single figures doing fade, draw and straight that might be you know three ball flights might be a decent challenge even then you wouldn't spend a hell of a lot of time doing it for a complete beginner it might be something as simple as can you hit these ones to the right can you hit these ones to the left can you hit these ones in between that's a drill that Beginners can do. And if they can't do it with that, they could do it with putting and scale it up from there. Similarly, with the toe and heel thing, you know, the testimonial I posted was a pretty extreme. It was almost a clipping the shank for the heel, and then right on the shiny part of the toe, he was practicing the extreme parts of it because he's a high 90s shooter at the moment. So that's a scale out task that's more extreme. If I had someone like a tool player in front of me, or when I'm practicing it myself, I might just be doing five millimeters off the toe, five millimeters off the heel. I'm just nudging it a little bit the other side. If I gave that task to a beginner, that would be too difficult. They wouldn't be able to feel the difference between five millimeters. So again, scaling the task with these things is important. So yeah, differential learning is exploring the scale of a skill. If you've got a skill of face strike, it is exploring toe. Heel. If you've got direction, it's exploring left, right. If you've got ground contact, it's exploring deeper, shallower. You know, just picking it off the surface, but versus digging deeper, perhaps. The
1: final two I would think of is curvature. If you listen to this show, you know, <laughs> say for the fourteenth thousandth time, I cured a hook by trying to hit a fade, and still I'm like thinking fade in my head. So, if you could just accomplish the task of Trying to hit a draw or a fade and just see what you have to do to accommodate that with your setup and and intention. And I would say, I would throw in not so much for everyone. I think trajectory can be helpful. You know, a lot of golfers struggle with ballooning shots. So maybe exaggerating a 30 or 40% swing with your hands really forward and trying to de loft it. So yeah, these are all ideas face strike, start direction, curvature. Ground contact, as you said, and loft presentation, which is really how high or low the ball is coming up off the face. Like Those are all ideas to get you started. You don't have to do all those. You can adjust the challenge based on where you are in this game. As Adam said, the better you are, the tighter and more challenging you can make these tasks. And the less skilled and newer you are to the game, don't make it so hard because as we said with our longer irons in the beginning, you don't want to make it too hard because then you're not going to be engaged and you're just going to be so demoralized because the task is too hard. So you do have to be do your best to challenge yourself a bit, but not too much based on where you're at in this game. But those are all like, just take that and run with it and you can make 10 or 20% of your practice time pretty fun, challenging and build some ball striking skills. That's ultimately what we're trying to do here.
0: Yeah. And on the different types of practice, you know, we've got what we call calibration, which is where you're just going for your desired shot or your desired skill. So say for example, we take center face contact. Calibration would be if someone's standing there trying to hit the center over and over and over. That's what most people would do. That's what that's the most logical form of practice. Differential is exploring the boundaries either side of it or moving the needle either side. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, it shows the the data that I've got in almost every domain, no matter what skill you're practicing. If I get one group and I tell them to only practice hitting the center, and I get another group and I ask them to hit toe and heel alternating, the alternating group, the differential practice group improves quicker. Similar in almost all skills. Say I've got someone who's got a, a hook swing path like yourself. They're swinging maybe five degrees, 10 degrees into out. Well, calibration would be, let's get that to zero. Differential practice would be, let's explore left. Let's see if you can get your path to be 10 left, five left, three left. Let's explore the spectrum. Even do your right side if you want, you know, do the actual fault. And again, all of my data shows that, not all of it, there are some outliers to it, but most of the data shows that when I get a player to explore the spectrum, when we go back to going for what we want, they're better at it. That person can hit a zero path if they want quicker, if they've explored the left side and the right side versus if they've only tried to hit zero.
1: And that has been like, how did I become a much better ball striker? A lot of that, like it's so useful. And again, if you're not taking lessons and you're going at it on your own, like this is very helpful. I think, you know, we got a question like how much technical work should you do? We've we've had episodes on that. I don't love golfers doing technical work by themselves because they often don't even know what to work on. So if you're not under the guidance of a swing professional, like Adam and I are not against technical golf work, I think that's a great idea for a lot of players. But if you're at it on your own, I'd prefer you to do this form of practice and, and our other disclaimer, as usual, is that it's not that we want you to hit fades and draws on command on the course or flight it low or high. We want you to explore the spectrum of what it feels like so that when you're called upon on the course, and let's say you are pulling it and you need to figure out how to open that face so you can make these adjustments. So in a sense, we're exploring all these extremes so that we can make your stock shot better. And more importantly... If you need to make adjustments on the course, you can do so more effectively. That type of practice prepares you better for that that test of golf. I can safely say we both believe that.
0: How do you make your stock shot better? You practice non-stock shots. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or, or you at least do a little bit of it.
1: That's it in a nutshell. And that does sound crazy to some people and that's fine. I, I accept that. But for all the eighty to ninety percent of golfers, that's probably a good estimate of golfers who are going at it on their own without a swing professional. I think that's a much better bet than just like aimlessly trying to do technical work off of YouTube videos. So, again, that is the foundation of the type of iron practice we like that translates to everything else. Trying to go through other questions we got here. Do we want to talk about ball placement as a as something you could experiment with? We did get that question on Twitter. Do you want to like quickly go over that? Is that
0: yeah, we do. I just want to make a point with that last thing. You know, if you can hit right and left, you can hit center. If you can hit it high and low, you can hit that in between trajectory. If you can hit toe and heel, you can hit the center. It's so much easier when you have these skills in place. The caveat to that, or the thing I, I want to make a point of it is don't work on all of them (laughs) at the same time right i wouldn't want people to go out and in the next 30 minutes right let's hit a fade here let's hit a high shot no pick one skill that you want to work on a day and lots of people we actually had this question on twitter is well what should i work on Well, the answer to that is what's your weakness? Where are you losing shots? You know, I know for myself that my strike quality is pretty good. It's very rare that I would miss a green long or short from strike quality. It happens, but it's rare. It's much more likely that I'm gonna miss left or right. So when I go out and I train, I'm gonna practice the directional versions of that. I'm gonna hit a few shots more to the right, hit a few shots more to the left, just gently, and then calibrate that middle ground. So yeah, don't go out and work on all of these things. Pick one skill to work on, and usually that's going to be your where you're losing your shots.
1: Yeah, and this is the reason you know we talk about feedback on this show all the time. You pay attention to what's giving you issues during your rounds, and then you go back and practice and say, okay, I noticed directional misses were an issue, or I was clanking it with my irons and I felt it was a bit toey then you can use some of these methods to give that some more attention and practice that that is literally what I do when I play golf. I'm just, I play, I see what's making me uncomfortable and I go back to the drawing board during practice when I have time and I try and make it comfortable again. Again, I'm I'm just looking through our catalog. Like we have, you know, we've got an episode from 2021 differential versus calibration practice. We've got shot shaping, we've got skill and technique. So, Yeah, I I challenge people, if you haven't listened to our our catalog, we've got an episode on club face control. These are all things you can go back and listen to more in depth or Adam's book, The Practice Manual, my book, Four Foundations of Golf, certainly more resources in there. But yeah, we want you to kind of, like I said, throw the kitchen sink at iron practice. There's a lot of different things you could do based on what's challenging you in your game. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board, it helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Lynxwear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a 2-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot. An antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux Gs come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting TrueLinkswear.com and using promo code Sweet Spot. Once again, that's TrueLinkswear.com and use promo code Sweet Spot. That's one word to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes.
0: One of the things that relates strongly to this is the question of how do I design my practice? Like what percentage should I do? How many balls should I hit? And things like that. I mean, ultimately, the more balls you hit, the better in a way. I mean, until you start losing concentration, I'm sure there's a a drop-off effect there. But I usually give people percentages you know, rather than ball amounts. It depends. Sometimes I'll give them ball amounts. But the general, if I'm giving the simplest version of the practice design, it would be Stage one, warm-up. Stage two, implement an intervention, something to improve your patterns. And stage three would be finished with some kind of game that simulates golf itself. So to go through that a little bit more, number one, warm-up. We've talked about warm-up before. I think we've done a whole episode on warm-up, right? The main goal of that is just look at your patterns for the day. How's your strike quality? What errors are popping up? You can also use statistics, your on-course statistics, to see what you're gonna work on that day, but you know, get a good warm-up where you're not thinking too heavily about things, usually just focusing on strike. Now, when it comes to the second phase, implementing an intervention, this could be a differential practice drill, like we just talked about. Could be calibrating, so just going for center strike. I'm not against doing that, just don't do all of it. It could be a variability practice task. So that would be something like the nine ball flights or hitting the center of the face, but doing it in different ways. We've got an episode on variability practice somewhere as well, or it could be a technique task. So there's four things you could implement there. Technique, differential, variability, or calibration. All those things are in my book. If you want to explore them deeper, or you can search through our library, you could probably do about 25% of each, or let's say 20% of each. So if you've got don't want to break an hour into into percentages. You have 15 minutes, 10 10 minutes each of one of those. Or you could just pick one of those and do half an hour of that maybe.
1: Well, just to interject for a quick second and then finish that thought is like the beauty of because we get asked so often like, well, what if I'm getting swing lessons? This doesn't have to compete with swing lessons. It can be in addition to them. So if you are getting swing lessons and your instructor has given you some technical thoughts and drills to work on. Absolutely. Then incorporate that into this practice. And then you could throw in some of the other things where you just kind of mess around with face strike. Like that's not going to, I think it can only strengthen the, those technical drills that you're getting from an instructor. It doesn't have to compete with them.
0: Yeah, they complement each other. So say, for example, if you were a shanker, right, and you had a technical issue, you're working on your body's moving forwards too much. So you start in a certain position, and as you swing, you move forwards, you know, a good few inches, and that's causing you to hit the heel. Well, your practice design might be warm up a little. And then when you go to the intervention stage, you might do half of the intervention stage just trying to hit the toe you know, the skill work. And the other half of the intervention phase, you might be working on the body motion that you're doing in, in the lessons. It's not an either or, these things complement each other, these things hold each other up. And then finally, you finish with a transference game. So this is where you're trying to kind of decondition yourself, decondition your way from the technical focuses, thinking too much about the intervention, you're trying to get back to a feel that you can play with. So this, you might pick a target, you might do a little bit more random practice, so changing clubs, uh, doing a full routine, trying to simulate the game, maybe even having some kind of outcome game where you're trying to get as many in a row down that target. And so yeah, then you're trying to implement maybe some of the interventions, or you're trying to forget about them. You're just trying to find a feel that you can take out on the golf course. My practice might look incredibly technical when I'm in that intervention phase. If you ask me what I'm thinking about when I'm trying to make an intervention, I might give you something that will blow your mind. You're like, what, are you trying to hit a ball with those thoughts? But then when I go back to my playing focus, my mind might be blank. I might be playing on instinct. So I can jump in and out of those analytical versus creative mindsets. And you need to kind of find that blend on the practice area because you can't go from being super analytical on the range and then jump on the course and expect to be creative you need to practice that creativity on the range as well
1: i think that's a great point it's something i've i try and remind people i guess most of it's on twitter these days but i think we what you said is like we practice consciously to eventually have a goal of being as unconscious as we can be on the course. And there needs to be both versions of that, as you said, in practice. So yeah, you can be grinding away on, on certain technical things while you're practicing. And then at some point, you're going to need to play a game or do something where you're like, okay, see target hit and hopefully mind as blank as possible. Because that's what we want for you on the golf course. We don't want you grinding away on technique on the course. I always think it's such a... Whenever I play in tournaments, I'll play in some pro tournaments and a lot of the participants are are teaching professionals and I can always see the difference. And I, I find I have so much respect for teaching professionals who can still play tournament golf at a high level because... I think it's hard to disassociate yourself from all the technical work that they're doing with students and and the things going through their minds. And I could always see them. I'm like, I can tell who the teaching pros are in the tournament because I see them grinding in their practice swings on all these technical things. It's hard to get out of that mode. I think it's like the cross they bear as players too, if they, if they play in tournaments. So yeah, I think that's a hard bridge to gap is how do you work on the technique, grind on it, and then get away from it as much as you can because our belief is that to swing a golf club effectively, you need to let the athlete take over and almost get out of your own way, your brain. That's hard to do, but it needs to be practiced.
0: I think if you understand the idea that if you do training, eventually what you're training, some of that will come out in your unconscious swing eventually. Now, say you did half an hour of training, a different move, and then you went back to non-thinking, your swing might look the same. Your non-thinking swing might look just 1% different. But that's where training over time, allowing these changes to happen and and change themselves slowly over time comes in. I think where most amateurs go wrong is they think that, oh, I'm making a swing change, therefore I have to go out on the golf course and think about that new swing. That's not the case. That can be an option if you really want to change the swing. But if you want to get that nice blend of making a change whilst at the same time still playing well, it's usually best to keep training to the training ground not on the golf course that's why it's so slow for pros to change their swing you know when you see you see these side by sides of certain pros held up as look how much he's changed his swing and then you see where (laughs) yeah where and that took five years to complete or 10 years to complete and so yeah i think you know these, these guys are beating balls 10 hours a day as well sometimes so it's we have to be realistic about this i mean you can change your swing in an instant swing changes don't have to take years and years but you'd be thinking about it you'd be really you'd have to be highly concentrated on it to have a noticeable swing change and that's not the best way to play for most people so yeah separate those phases out
1: easier said than done i don't want to make it seem like that's easy that's one of the harder tasks in golf
0: for sure it is it is So you wanted to talk about ball position? I know we had that question. Yeah,
1: I think someone, we got a couple of questions about this. I think it's just worth noting. Not that I don't think there is an answer for all players, but it's something you need to, like if we're talking about how to practice with your irons, approach clubs, ball position absolutely can influence a lot of things. A curvature, start direction, loft presentation, meaning how high or low the ball is going to come out. So a player like me, and this is... Consistent with what you've read in Hogan's book and a lot of other golfers is that as loft decreases, most players need to put the ball more up in their stance. I'm gonna hit a pitching wedge close to the middle or just in front of the middle of my stance, whereas a four-iron, I don't have it necessarily just inside my lead heel, but it's up there. I need that. That's something, again, when I practice with my irons, I'm paying attention to these things, and I'm saying, well, geez. I have to make a decision here because with my tendencies and my swing, I need to get that four iron in the air quickly. And I just can't do that with it in the middle of my stance. It needs to be farther forward because that's going to get me a little bit more loft and it's going to make my swing a little less into out up there. But then there's some issues with it being too shallow. So there's always a give and take and ball position, but it's something you should be paying attention to, experimenting with a little bit. And saying, oh, if I get the ball here with my 7-iron, that's giving me better ground contact, face contact, directional, and and curvature. So I don't want to tell people there's a right answer for everyone. I think there's some basic guidelines, but something to pay attention to on and off the golf course, especially with your your irons. Because you want to find out – launch monitors can be helpful with this too. You want to find out so that when you're on the course – I know generally I'm going to be hitting my eight iron somewhere here in my stance, my six iron, my four iron there. I think about that a lot, ball position.
0: Yeah. it's. I mean, the general rule is going to be the longer the iron, the more forward in the stance you're going to have it. The reason for that is as we move the ball farther forwards, it allows us to present more loft and gets us a slightly shallower angle of attack. The advantage of that is you're, you're able to hit your long irons higher. You know, if you played all your irons in the same position in, the, in your stance, yeah, you'd probably be decent with wedges, maybe up to seven iron, and then as you get the longer clubs, you're not getting them airborne. Also, as you get to a longer club, the club naturally, because you're standing a little farther from it, is swinging more around your body on a slightly flatter plane. And it's kind of complex, but with D-plane, if people have heard of that, I think we've done, yeah, we've done the, analogy of the ferris wheel and how tilted <laughs> the, it is the
1: ferris wheel with the people puking on it
0: uh, yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was my comment to you i remember
0: the more tilted that wheel is the more kind of baseball style it is the more the path will go into out so placing the ball forwards in the stance actually neutralizes that a little bit so moving the ball forward in the stance just allows us to actually keep more consistent path and face variations across the set of clubs that's one of the other reasons why these things occur. So it allows us to launch a ball higher, allows us to keep the path and the face more consistent between clubs.
1: Let me ask you a quick question because you've instructed so many golfers. If the general rule of thumb is, is that as loft decreases, as the iron gets longer, you put it more forward in your stance. Like that's a generic good starting point for most golfers. In your career, have you seen any exceptions to that where you would tell a certain golfer, hey, I want your five iron more towards the middle
0: of your stance? Than a wedge, farther back than a wedge?
1: No, no, no. Or just saying we're going to start off in the middle of the stance with our short irons. And maybe for some golfers, they just stay there as the iron gets longer. I mean, have you seen that before?
0: I would say that it's like most things in golf. There is no one way of doing it, but the rules generally apply to most people. So, an example of that would be there's no perfect grip position. However, if I made everybody take a stronger grip, they would tend to hit it more to the left. The I'm just trying band. to get you to say the, the 100, 100 golfer yeah. thing. <laughs> I tagged you That's what Twitter. this was. So, yeah, the rule applies to everybody. But, you know, everybody might – there might be some people with who need a weaker grip to play their best golf. Some people might need a stronger grip to play their best golf. But if you get those same 100 golfers and strengthen that grip – The overall pattern is generally going to be more left. Might be some outliers to that. It's the same with ball position. So there's no optimal ball position. Some people may need to have it slightly farther back in this stance. So I'm thinking of players who tend to swing more in to out. You know, they might need to have the ball a little farther back in this stance to match the low point and vice versa. However, the rule would apply to all of those. You move the ball farther forwards in the stance for the longer clubs. There might be some exceptions where you have a similar ball position across all clubs. Maybe, for example, if someone tends to hit it very high with all clubs, you know, then playing the ball, I wouldn't want their ball position crazy far back with a wedge because, you know, you're going to create too steep an angle of attack but you wouldn't want their ball too far forward with a a long iron as well because you don't need it because they're already hitting the ball high. So there might be some people who have more similar ball positions across the bag, yeah.
1: Either way, it's something to pay attention to and mess around with a little bit and hopefully settle on like, I know I'm putting my ball here. This gives me the best chance with each club. That's my main hope for people with that is that you pay attention to it. It's an alignment thing. It's a setup thing. We did an episode on that. It is important because it can influence a lot of things in your ball flight.
0: I think thinking about the trade-offs with ball position as well. So if you move the ball position forwards, yes, the positive to that, or it may be a positive, is that you can launch the ball higher. However, the trade-off of moving the ball position forwards is you also shallow the angle of attack. Yep. <laughs> and that may create more poor ground contact, especially if you're hitting off poor lies, especially if you're hitting out of rough. So you're you Talking have about to be my aware whole – this is my whole life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you just have to be aware of these things. And, you know, I personally, I have a, a relatively stock ball position for each club. I'm not so particular about it that I get alignment sticks out and I'm measuring to the nearest inch, but I have a relatively stock ball position for each club. However, I also practice moving the ball around that stock position a few inches. Because sometimes I might need to hit that fore iron even higher. So I might put, nudge it forwards in my stance. I'm just aware that the trade-off is going to be ground contact. So I'd only do that in a situation where the ball's teed up maybe, or it's on a nice lie. And other times I might need to flight a shot lower. So I also practice moving the ball back in the stance around that stock position. So yeah, for the most people... Stock position, go out and practice that. Once you get a little better at that, try and move it around a little bit. The advantage of moving it around, another advantage of moving it around, is if you're ever on the course and you accidentally place the ball in a wrong position, your brain already knows how to figure out that solution. So I'm never obsessed about, you know, is my ball absolutely in the right place? Because, well, I've practiced hitting good shots around that ball position. As long as it's roughly in the same place, I can hit a good shot from there.
1: Yeah, the skilled golfer is going to naturally change like the arc depth of their swing a little bit. Like if I was playing in the wind and I wanted to move my four iron a little bit more towards the middle of my stance, as you said, I know I'm going to need to change the arc depth of my swing instinctively. I'm not thinking about it because I'm probably going to get a little steeper angle of attack and ground contact. It's probably going to come out lower with more hook on it. So I might have to adjust my alignment. So it's always this give and take of what it will do to the shot achieves the goal of lowering the trajectory but i need the trade-off of it's probably going to be a little bit more curvature and a steeper descent into the ball so i will try and solve those as an athlete while i swing it but it's there i'm thinking about it so this is golf this is how you solve the problem so all right i think that's enough on ball placement we had some other
0: questions do you have one that you wanted to get to No, I was just going to mention the irony of if you practice so consistent, like if you were a type (laughs) of person that all you ever did was the exact same ball position every time and that's all you practiced, you might actually suffer more inconsistency because if you Mm. get So put the the ball on your,
1: put it on the back of your right foot
0: and try and hit it from there sometimes. Maybe not that extreme, but you can practice a little bit around your stock ball position to be adaptable.
1: That's like going back and forth. A good point is like, what's our recommendation here? Yeah, you're going to do some stuff you wouldn't do on the golf course. Maybe try and hit a four iron with the ball back in your stance. That, That could be some of that experimental stuff with the goal of increasing your skills and adjusting all those things in your swing that we're talking about. And then at some point, like settling on some ball positions that you could be like, all right, I think these are decent guidelines, but not going crazy over it either. All in balance,
0: of course. What's, what other questions have we got? i got a ton here.
1: I'll go back to it. I think I mentioned it earlier in the episode. So I think there's a big question is, is the driver swing different from the irons? I think we could probably do a whole episode on that. I'll just speak anecdotally here. I think it's more of a setup thing and an intention thing. I don't think I have a completely different driver swing or 50-yard wedge swing. It's more of an intention. So I'll give you an example of what's going through my head. So with like my irons, I maybe will have more intention of keeping my pressure and weight on my lead side, the left side of my body, because I'm going to want to hit down on it a little bit more and I don't want to sway away from the ball. Whereas with my driver, I've got the ball teed up way in the front of my stance. I'm trying to hit up on it, but I'm accomplishing that just by kind of like tilting upwards to the sky, having the ball really far up in my stance and the ball teed up. So is it a different swing in my head? I think yes and no a little bit, but for the most part, not really. Like I don't think I'm doing anything that different. It's more the setup dictates a lot of things and how I deliver the club and maybe the intent little things like weight distribution or stuff like that might be a little bit different. But I think it's like 90% the same in my head. That's how I play.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're going really granular, every single club is a different swing. It's going to provide, you know, someone like Sasha McKenzie would analyze the forces and talks and say, yeah, you have to have different forces and talks input into the club. (laughs) This is why random practice where you're changing clubs is really important for learning. Because if all you do is practice with one club, you you might get very good at that club, but (laughs) you're not getting the, it might not translate as well to the other clubs and unless you start practicing throwing other clubs in. However, to your point, John, I completely agree. Most of the change consciously should actually just be set up, you know, ball position a little bit more forwards, balls teed up. You may be a little more tilted behind it, less weight forwards. You might be standing a touch taller. But the overall motion is very, very similar. Like I used to read when I was a kid, you've got to swing your arms flat. You've got to swing it more around your body with a driver and more upright with an iron. Most of that's going achieve, to be achieved by posture changes, by how close you are to the ball. And lots of that's going to be achieved just by the length of the club. So you don't have to consciously swing it more around your body with a driver unless with an iron necessarily. It's just the club itself is going to achieve that for you. So yeah, for the most part, a couple of setup changes, ball position more forward, a little taller, a little bit more behind it, and then make a, a similar feeling swing, really.
1: And I think the more important thing is, again, this is a more basic, simpler philosophy on golf in general, is that I don't want people going out on the course feeling like they need four or five different swings as well. You know, we talk about not wanting to shape it in both directions and stuff like that. So I don't want someone stepping on it because I used to play golf that way. I'm like, oh, I've got my driver swing and my iron swing. And the more I felt like I was trying to do something different, the worse I was at it. And I found that when I went in the opposite direction, I tried to make things more simple. That takes some work to get there, obviously. I'm not saying you could just simplify your game overnight. But the more I viewed it as one consistent thing with just different intentions and setups, the less. The less my mind was burdened at the at the most important moment, which was the second before I pulled the trigger and, you know, whatever that, however long it takes me to initiate the swing, like the more clarity and simplicity I had over the ball. So I would prefer people to aspire to not having different golf swings of thinking about it as one thing. And you're just making these little tweaks to accommodate it and realizing, as you said, Adam, like the club is going to do a lot of that just by its length, its design and its weight and all those things.
0: The fact the club is kind of different to the rest of your set. So, you know, iron's typically steel shaft, then you get a driver, it's got a bigger head, the center of mass is in a different location, the shaft may be a different kick point, things like that. I have seen quite a lot, and I even experienced this in my own game, I get different patterns with my driver compared to my wedges, for example, or my irons. I tend to miss my irons more left, whereas I tend to miss my driver more to the right. So it's okay, and I get this question a lot, do I have the same grip for every club? And I say, well, again, there's no perfect grip, but the rules apply. So if I miss my wedges and my iron's more left, I tend to take a weaker grip with the irons. And with the driver, I take a stronger grip position. Now, that kind of sucks that you, (laughs) you have to do that. The way around that would be to get your clubs fit. So that they are much more matching. So, you know, I have tried to achieve that a little bit more by getting my irons bent flatter. So my irons will tend to miss more right. So it kind of matches my drive a little bit more, allows me to take a stronger grip with the irons than when they're perfectly flush. So yeah, getting your the club set up so that they match more evenly throughout the set is the way around that. That's what the tour players would do. You know, they go onto a tour bus and they say, right, I'm missing this 10 yards left, fix it for me. They do a few tweaks, maybe the center of the mass, maybe change the lie angle of it, maybe change the shaft a little bit, bang, there, it's it's missing the same as your irons now. But unfortunately, amateurs don't get that opportunity, and you know every day is a kind of mixed bag for an amateur. So, yeah, we, we, it's a it's a tough game for us, right? If only we had a team of players around, a team of yeah, engineers around us.
1: It would be great to have the tour bus every week for us. But yeah, I mean, if you are interested in that, we're plugging all the the, the library here in this episode. We have. I think five or six episodes of Woody Lashen so you can learn a bit more about club fitting and how it can accommodate your swing. But yeah, that that is part of the equation too. Like I can never prove it. My thought was that equipment is like 10 to 15% influence on like how important it is for scoring. That's just like my feel based on everything I've learned from Woody and, and doing my own experimentation over the years. So yeah, if your setup is not – in the proper place throughout the bag and your lie angles aren't right and the gapping and the lofts and the center of gravity of your driver and the shafts, you could be making golf a lot harder for yourself and thinking that you need to do all these different swings where if everything was matching up to your tendencies with how you deliver the club with your irons and your wedges and your driver, you wouldn't need to do that as much because the club's could be again they're not going to solve everything club fitting is not a cure-all but that's why i come up with like that 10 to 15 percent number it can have a major influence for sure
0: i could be fueling the golf industry here by saying that if you're the type of player who one day you have great iron play and awful driver and next day it flips around it could be that your set is not as matched as they could be and you're making the same swing across all and just kind of flipping, but. Yeah, that's not a call I don't think to go out and buy a new set of clubs and hope that works it out for you. I think that you have to.
1: For some people, it's as simple as taking your existing irons and getting the lie angles adjusted. It could be I see plenty of people with the loft on their driver is just totally wrong and maybe they just need to crank it up a couple of degrees. That could change a lot of things. Sometimes it's not that complicated. I I, I hate to send people on a wild goose chase because it is – You know, we got people listening to the show from all around the world and there's not great club fitters everywhere and there's not honorable club fitters everywhere. You'll get to some places and they'll be like, oh, well, here's your $7,000 set with aftermarket shafts and everything. So I wish I could solve that problem for all of you, but unfortunately we can't. But yes, equipment can play into that for sure.
0: Here's a question for you, John. Is your strike pattern toe and heel is it similar with your driver as to irons do you tend to miss more on the heel with the driver as well because you said heel with the irons
1: i would say i'm more toey on the wedges if i had to make a guess and i'm more heely as loft decreases a lot of my driver and that's a good miss for me because of gear effect and the way i deliver the club like I'm, i'm very happy to miss my driver on the heel because then i'll kind of get that spinny fade i'm okay with that if i was missing it on the toe then i would get more of a low spin duck hook although I've, i'm pretty neutral with driver now but yeah i, I would say not a hundred percent but yeah as loft decreases I, I could especially with like lob and sandwich i could be a little bit more toey at that part of the bag
0: yeah i'm kind of fortunate in that respect and that my i miss all of my club's toe side if anything so i can use the same intention for every single club but you know there are lots of people who well i miss my driver more on the heel i miss my irons more on the toe and so they may need different intentions for different clubs to neutralize those yeah. things if they if the patterns get out of hand or again if they have the opportunity to get club fit you can change club fit and it can influence face strike occasionally
1: definitely i've addressed a lot of the questions i wanted to I didn't anticipate this being a two part episode because it leads into a lot of other topics, but is there any, anything else big that you had on your notes that you wanted to address? A
0: ton of questions from Twitter here. One of them was, what can I tell from my divot? Not as oh, much as you'd think. <laughs> yeah. Not as much as Divet you'd reading. think. reading it. is a tough science. It's like tea <laughs> leaf reading, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can tell where you contacted the ground first. Yeah, so it's it's great for that. And that's an important thing, right? So, spraying a line on the ground, placing your golf balls on. That's in terms of feedback, you should be doing that. A lot. I made a jokey tweet to you the other day uh, or yesterday about people worrying about their kinematic sequence and then you ask them about how's your ground contact and they're like, huh, oh, I don't know. I'm not monitoring. It's like, <laughs> <Who> well, <cares? laughs> what are you doing all I'm this just... complex stuff with <laughs> with your kinematic sequence and you're leaving out the basics, you know? So yeah, you can tell where you've hit the ground. I mean, you can get an inkling of what your divot depth is as long as you're off, a, off the similar lie each time, you know, if you're hitting off similar fluffiness of grass and turf quality but even divot depth doesn't really show you arc depth because uh, you can get bounce up you know if sometimes you can make the exact same swing and you'll make a shallow divot because the club bounces up if you're playing in australia on hard baked turf for example whereas you could go to britain after a soggy day of rain which is every day and that that divot is going to dig in deeper so you can get a sense for arc depth how i would use that is if i hit it fat And I also have hit the ground really hard and deep, then that's a call to say, all right, in the next few, I've got to try and pick it a little bit more and vice versa. If I've hit one thin, maybe even the ground contact too far forwards and there's no divot, that's a call for me to try and dig a little deeper next time. So that's how I'd use that.
1: Yeah, I just think looking more towards the extremes and only paying attention when that's occurring. I mean, I know there's the geometry to it of like for me, for example, I take Nice divots now because I'm hitting more down on the ball with my irons, whereas before I used to be had a really shallow angle of attack and I was I was picking it. So yeah, I would say there's a correlation there, but I don't like sit there and think about it on the course. I'm more concerned with oh, I chunked that one two inches behind the ball. That's an issue. Like I did it the other day. It was wet out. It just rained, and I I think it was my gap wedge. I I hit behind it and I missed the green twenty yards short. And I'm like, I'm gonna put that in the memory bank there and see if that happens again or maybe if you caught one thin you know i'm going to put that in the memory bank too but yeah i'm not a divot reader
0: <laughs> the other thing you can tell from your divot is if the middle of your divot is in front of the ball then your angle of attack was negative it's almost impossible for you to hit up on the ball and have the divot in front
1: yeah that would be a strange task to complete
0: <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's kind of possible i'm sure it's like possible, possible
1: but yeah but not
0: the Not way is possible, and I have to throw this in because I know there's probably some people listening and they're like, oh, well, what about this? The way it would be possible is say you're hitting one degree up on the ball. And then w- what happens when the club connects with the ball, the, the club head actually gets deflected downwards a few degrees. So you could possibly hit up on it a little bit and then the club gets deflected downwards, grazes the grass after the ball. So, but even then, I would class that as a, almost a negative angle of attack because through the impact interval it is. But, Yeah. If your divot, if your middle of your divot is in front of the ball, there's a good chance you're in a good place. All right.
1: That goes divot reading.
0: Split of technical. How do I split my technical? Differential practice, calibration, probably done a little bit of this, but...
1: Yeah, I think we covered that a bit.
0: I'd say looking at the season, the seasonality of it, I would say I would do more differential practice. So exploring the scale in two scenarios. If you're struggling to change a pattern... So, for example, if you're in the middle of a season and you're having a bout of shanks, go and do some more differential practice. Go and practice hitting the toe side of the club. Get get it neutralized. Or seasonality-wise, if you are in winter or you're away from tournaments, that's a good time to start implementing differential practice. Whereas if you're coming up for tournament preparation that's more of a time just to do practice games you know transference games like picking targets and trying to do full routines things like that more calibration during that phase as well similar for technical or the alt alternate for technical i would leave that to more off season or when you're away from tournaments as well so i adjust these variables up and down depending on what's coming up effectively in the player's schedule
1: yeah i think in a perfect world, I would leave the technical stuff for when you're not playing as much just because it's more of a time commitment. We did some episodes on Shaheen Nakjavani. We did an episode on taking golf lessons and we did another episode on swing changes. And we had some thoughts there about how it could take several months, you know, to ingrain those habits. And it's best probably to start in the off season if possible uh, for technical stuff. Whereas, yeah, if I'm like, struggling with something in season, then I'm going to just try and do, you know, the opposite or get creative with it just to see if I can find something I can bring out on the course. Because again, I'm playing golf once or twice a week, something like that a few times a month. I don't want to start tinkering with something that, you know, I don't want to open up Pandora's box, so to speak, in season.
0: Yeah, so I mean, most people won't go wrong with a 25% split either way. But generally, I just say increase the differential and technical practice when away from tournaments, unless you need it. Uh, You know, if you're having a bout of the shanks. And then increase calibration and transference or game-like training when you're coming into tournaments. Don't do it the wrong way, basically. Don't have a tournament coming up next week and go and implement a new technical piece to your swing that's just the wrong way of doing it oh i, I watched this video on youtube last night let's go on out try and try that before my big tournament next week yeah no, that's, a, that's a no-no
1: <laughs> you're not going to find anything new that quickly you can't yeah. you can't cram for the test like that yeah. unfortunately
0: even if it's a good piece or technically a good move you know you still have to learn it jumping into a formula one car is not going to help you get around a course quicker if you've never used a formula one car before
1: Yep, I think it's the biggest mistake in golf is just because you understand something conceptually doesn't mean you're even close to implementing it on the golf course, especially in what we're trying to achieve, which is that unconscious implementation where you don't have to think about it. Like that is that is why people read books about the golf swing and watch videos and they're fooled into believing, well, I've Synthesize this, and now it's you know it's kind of like they think they are. Remember in in the first Matrix when Neo first gets in there, and they're like oh. downloading that. And he's <laughs> like, "Oh, you're a martial arts master now." Like I think golfers think that's like, "Oh, I I, I saw that video on how to shallow the club." Like that's part of me now. Like, yeah. no, you're what's very, he, very far Elon away from Musk's.
0: That. What's Elon Musk's new brain? Neuralink. Chip? Neuralink? Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe Neuralink
1: will do it for us one day. If you're listening to this in 2045, we might be wrong. <laughs>
0: New question we got, where do you look in terms of targets? Do you look at where you're trying to start the ball or do you look at your end target? I got some thoughts Hmm, on these. That's a good question. Yeah. It depends on the type of player. I would say so I've I separate out target from aim. And I even separate those things out from alignment. And I separate those things out from flag as well. So for example, the flag might be on the left side of the green your target might be a safer place, like the middle of the green. That's where you want the ball to finish on average. Where you aim to hit that target, I'm a drawer of the ball. I might aim at the right side of the green. And then my alignment might also be at the right side of the green. Now you can have where all of these things are kind of matched. It's probably not best in that scenario. We don't wanna be aiming at left pins, but say the pin is in the middle, You aim at the middle, the target is in the middle, you line to the middle. You could have a player who does that. That's, you know, a player who doesn't have really a shot shape. That's fine. I would not mistake that for being better, though. I might hit it better drawing the ball into targets than a 15 handicap is going to be who has more of a straight pattern, if that makes sense. You have guys like Bubba Watson, you know, they used to shape it in different ways. So their alignment might be all over the place. So you'd actually probably find that if you watched a tour event, they might all have the similar target, the same target, say middle of the green or biased towards the middle of the green. Every single tour player you ask might have the same target. However, when you watch them line up, when you watch them aim, what well, they're mentally doing might all be different to achieve that same task. So yeah, you have to aim mentally for your shot patterns, for your biases.
1: Yeah, it's, I think it's very personal. I, I think I used to be more shot shape and now I'm more start direction and just like I'm trying to start the ball somewhere and I'm just kind of agnostic to whether how the ball travels through the air. I'm just thinking like, oh, some are going to fall left of that and some are going to fall to the right of that. Whereas before I used to be thinking more like how I'm shaping it, I guess, because I had a bigger draw. I'm more like, I'm going to start it here. That's going to be like my, it's probably close to my aim point as well. It's going to be a good strategic decision. And I'm just picking that knowing that some will finish left, some will finish right. Maybe I hit a push block. Maybe I hit it exactly straight. Maybe I draw it a little. It ends up to the left of it or I pull it. I see more. Start direction is really my focus the last few years, but it is very personal i don't think there's a there's absolutely not a right answer to that
0: yeah I've been both players you know before I got on launch monitors, I was a bigger shaper of the golf ball, a bigger drawer, so i you know my target might be middle of the green, but I would be looking at the right side of the green. And and that would actually be my intention. I call that aim, you know, where you're mentally intending the ball to finish, knowing that if I hit that shot, my miss is going to be more left. My miss is going to be better. So I, I always say to people, I sometimes say to people, I never look at the flag. I've never looked at the flag. And that's changed over the years a little bit because now since I've been on launch monitors, I you, you kind of naturally veer towards a more neutral path even though it's not better. You just naturally veer that way. So I am i would say my target and my aim are more matched now than they used to be. Like if the target is the middle of the green, I'll probably be looking at the middle of the green, trying to send the ball there. But yeah, to my earlier point, I'm no better now as a result of that. You know, I used to be just as, as good when I would shape the ball in as when my target and aim were matched so it's not you know don't don't be caught in that trap of oh I need everything to line up I need all these pretty lines I need to be lining up towards the target I need to be aiming at the target and my target needs to be here No you can have kind of mismatches there as long as they're consistent and we have an episode what was it two hours on alignment itself yeah it's so
1: personal uh, what's the goal like to keep your pattern of where all the golf balls end up? as close as possible to the target. And again, I think these names, these definitions, aim, alignment, target, like sometimes they don't really mean anything. You just kind of like instinctually are doing all of this. And then if someone asks you to like step back and deconstruct it all, you'd be like, oh maybe my target is the same as my or start direction. Like I want it to be instinctual, but you have to do a little bit of work in your practice to make it that way.
0: It is for good players, it's instinctive. Like you said, I when I was doing the accuracy plan, I had to deconstruct what my thought processes were. And I was like, oh yeah, there is a difference between my target and where I actually aim. How do I convey that to people? So obviously, quick plug there if you, if you wanna learn about those things, the accuracy plan. But yeah, most poorer players, they don't have these concepts at all. They're not even developed from an unconscious level. All there is for most poor players is there's the flag. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, just slowly introducing these concepts, it's like, okay, well, there's the flag, but maybe your target's going to be middle of the green. You know, just slowly introducing these things can be better. And then after a while, that gets assimilated into their unconscious. You know, they're picking better targets and aiming in the right place and hitting more greens as a result. So, just like anything, really, learning these tasks conceptually, you've got to learn them first and then they sink into the unconscious and be part of who you are.
1: All right. Moving along, do we have others, the age-old question?
0: Yeah, I've got loads of questions here. Someone said, when I'm practicing, do I should I change alignment for each shot or should I keep alignment stick to one flag? So basically, it uses alignment stick on the ground. Again, we've done a, an episode on alignment. The takeaway from that was alignment doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be parallel lines. I shouldn't say perfect because that insinuates there's a good way of doing it. Doesn't have to be parallel lines. It just has to be consistent for good shot shapes.
1: I'm not against alignment sticks. I don't like straight lines in golf for some reason. I think they're great for some people, but yeah, whatever is getting you to (laughs) accomplish the goal is the right
0: right answer. I rarely use alignment sticks now. I know that's heresy in the golf industry. For most people, I do recommend them a little bit you know at least to know where your target is but i'm okay if someone has that alignment stick on the ground and their feet are lined up a little bit to the right or left of that if they need it to be again as long as that's consistent in terms of random practice should i be going changing that alignment stick each time versus going to one flag the general consensus is if you're in the early stages of developing a skill or warming up keep it to the same flag block practice Whereas if you're prepping for tournaments, if you're trying to transfer skills, if you're trying to build skills or or take skills that you've built and make them come out more, do random practice, change targets. That's the prevailing wisdom. That's what people feel is correct. I may even challenge that and say just random is better overall for most people. That's what the research shows. But there is this gut feeling that that's not correct. You know, if you get a complete beginner and get them to do random practice, they're going to get reached that point of frustration more because it's a harder task. So again, just balance that frustration versus learning thing. Random is going to make you learn more. It's going to make you perform on the course better.
1: However, this is why I put sugar and equal in my coffee in the morning.
0: (laughs) Sugar and what?
1: (laughs) An equal artificial sweetener. Because I'm not sure which one will kill me faster, so I just do a little bit of both. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's my philosophy on life.
0: Yeah, we'll do a little bit of both.
1: I don't overkill on anything. I put a little bit of raw sugar and I put a little bit of equal. And, you know, I'm pretty sure I'll be okay if I keep them in balance. There's
0: there's a sweet spot, right? If you're, if you're confused as to which <laughs> one, I, do a little bit of both.
1: Just do both. <laughs> and I do a touch of creamer. A very small amount because I like it, but I'm not putting like four tablespoons in there. <laughs> We are going to end part one of our iron practice discussion there. You can tune in next week for part two. Thanks for everyone who listens to the show and supports us. You can check out Adam's products at adamyounggolf.com. And you can check out my video course and book at thefourfoundationsofgolf.com. We will see you next week with part two.